there are people who are very hands off, right? And just like they'll write the specs and and expect other people to do the work. I look for for PMs and business leaders in general who are willing to pick up that shovel and start digging. Welcome to Go to Market, a series of discussions with product managers focused on core product skills, career management, and the experiences that have made them successful at companies big and small. I'm Mark, a PM at Google. And I'm Stuart, a PM at Benchling. We started this podcast to learn from people smarter than us, and now we're sharing the insights that we've gathered from talking to other PMs. On today's show, we have Jeff Charles, head of product at Ramp. I first met Jeff in San Francisco at an improv class, and let me tell you, there's no better way to meet someone than crawling on the floor, making gesture sounds. Great first impression. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Jeff, give us the TLDR on your career and how you got here today. So I think through my career, I've been following the hype. Uh, So when I graduated from college, it was all about management consulting and investment banking. So I did that spiel for about three years, realized that PowerPoints and helping large national banks get wealthier wasn't really in the books for me. Switched to a pricing analytics company called Nomis, which was uh, trying to build big data solutions and machine learning models. So that was the the newest trend back then. I learned all about uh, data science and had my first experience into software development, became a product manager there and realized that I wanted to work more on the consumer side and hopefully, you know, tech for good. Joined a company called LendUp, which was trying to disrupt the payday lending space and offer more affordable and fair access to credits. Joined them on their platform team, uh, really trying to understand how to build fintech uh, from the ground up. And then wanted to have a, more access to a business line. So uh, joined their car program, spun up the, the secured card and helped scale the, uh, a new credit card for subprime consumers, which is a competitor Capital One. And, and that company uh, was bought by a private equity company and spun out into a company called Mission Lane. And then after that, just burned out, took a sabbatical and found an awesome company called uh, Ramp where I am today. So if you're always following the hype, can we expect you to do crypto next? <laughs> It's a great question. We, we were actually thinking about crypto at Ramp too. It's kind of a, a crazy space with regards to treasury services for businesses. I am definitely interested in it, but but less so than, than many others who know a lot more than I do on the space. It's hard not to think about crypto these days. I feel like it's everywhere. You've got a pretty eclectic background. How planned was your path? How how'd you get to where you are today? Did you have like a five-year plan to get there? You mentioned starting with following the hype. Yeah, I had I have very little plans. All I was optimizing for was was learning and learning how things work. So one of the things that really attracted me to the positions I was taking was that it was as close to the metal as you can get to understanding how the actual systems, products and services are working. And I thought that that was the best way for me to get that foundation, that technical foundation for them scale into a business leader, scale into a people leader, et cetera. I figured technology was kind of the, the big wave of change in our generation. And then I just wanted to make sure that I always looked back a year in the past and realized how far I've come. And whenever I got to a point where, you know, I looked back, you know, six to 12 months and, and realized that I hadn't grown, 
that's when I made some some pretty drastic changes to the, with regards to my um, my responsibilities or or job. You mentioned really wanting to understand how systems work and how the technical parts of those systems work. You took a sabbatical where it also seems like you know how do these systems work and not necessarily the technical aspects but the human aspects of them. Yeah, it's it was kind of a dream of mine to. Uh, travel the world, but do it in a way that wasn't touristic or touristy. Uh, how could I go to some really cool places and actually have a thesis for research? The idea of, of my sabbatical came out of the work I was doing at Lend Up Mission Lane, which was focused around how can technology better the financial lives of consumers. And I realized that that was kind of a wave that was happening across the world. So I decided to basically pick four or five different poles in the world that had interesting historical or, or current uh, companies that had really revolutionized the space. Think like M-Pesa for, for Kenya in terms of peer-to-peer payments and try to spend as much time as possible in those areas. Um, so that was really for me to yet again, try to get firsthand experience into how things work by actually spending time with the people who built it rather than you know articles or or research papers or, you know, academic findings, et cetera. You mean reading Forbes isn't going to get me there? Like, <laughs> but no, I, I do appreciate your comment around getting to the metal, right? Of like, how, how do I get to where the action is actually happening so I can understand about this, this system? If I were to try to plan my sabbatical right now, I, I feel like I would have a really hard time knowing where to start. Like, where, where do I drop off? Who do I talk to? And, and getting access to the people that know the the things that I want to learn. Yeah, it's a good question, and and I highly recommend folks uh, connecting with a with a good friend of mine, DJ, who is the founder of the Sabbatical Project. He's done a lot of research in this space uh, around the value of the sabbatical and how how it can revolutionize benefits for employees. To answer your question more directly, you should not have a goal for a sabbatical other than just taking time for yourself. I think over planning it might. Be the opposite of the goal of a sabbatical, but I would I would basically try to find a stress-free way for you to just explore what you actually want to do with yourself and let yourself kind of discover that path in front of you. And so part of that is do something as opposite as what you're doing today as possible. And so for me it was okay, I'm going to not work, fly to Mexico City and talk to people, which I very rarely do. All I do is work and not talk to people apart from colleagues. How was it not working for the first time? Like, was it was it difficult not checking your email incessantly? I think there's there's a few things that are very stressful for folks who are really focused on their efficiency, however you define that. The first is that your your bank account is no longer going up. And the second is that you no longer matter to a key project or key goal and so you do feel extremely ineffective, quote unquote, from a societal point of view. That's a hangover that lasts maybe a, a, a month or so. And then you realize that you are learning so much more than uh, just being good at your job. You're, you're learning things that you actually care to learn. And I've had people who took a sabbatical and never come back and realize they don't need to make as much money, don't need to have such an expensive lifestyle, and are much more interested in in learning and doing one-off gigs and in uh, changing their ways. And I think it's, it's super powerful. You had mentioned there was this kind of process where 
you know, first month you're like unlearning all those habits that you got from work. Second month, you're just kind of weaning off being productive. And third month, you're really kind of getting interested in what it is that, that like is kind of interesting at a core to you. What, what was it like going into that third month of the, of the sabbatical? At, at the end of connecting with a ton of people, and I think, you know, LinkedIn has such a strong uh, value there in terms of being able to find people who are like-minded, uh, asking people, hey, do you know do you know the person that I should be talking to and, and building that network? After, after three months, I realized that there was a lot of value in not only me learning from individuals who were on the ground in Mexico or in Nairobi or in, in Bangalore, but actually trying to advise them on a few things that I knew as well. And so after connecting, I realized that there was a, a huge opportunity for me to start advising folks on things that could matter in their local geographies, things like how to build a lean process, how to leverage scrappy technology to put MVPs together, how to think about organizational structures around product versus design versus engineering, and then how to go from you know an idea to pitch book and how to connect with investors. And so I realized that I still needed to be somewhat productive. Uh, but in a way that I actually really cared about. And, and that's kind of the, the goal for the next three months of, of my sabbatical was, was kind of building building these go-to-market strategies for founders pro bono and learning from them as well around the uniqueness of their business models and, and local environments. One thing I really appreciate too is you can go to fintechworldtour.com and see exactly what your learnings are and how you went about that. Is writing a big sort of tool of self-reflection for you and solidifying some of those learnings? How did you think about that within the context of your sabbatical? Yeah, it was huge. I, I think that writing for me was a way to structure my own thinking. I never really wrote with the intention of it being picked up. I mostly wrote because folks that were helping me uh, along the way were asking me to you know, share what I would find. Uh, these are folks, for instance, who invested in thousands of companies across across Kenya and Nigeria, but have never even gone there. Or folks that have written, you know, books about uh, the Indian UPI system, but have never gone to Mexico. And so because I was able to do things that they were interested in doing themselves, they had a vested interest in, lear in learning what I was learning. And so writing for me was to be able to share back, to also have fun in my own ways, uh, and to have kind of this diary, this this travel diary. And uh, and, and the site was kind of a way to also build a personal brand so that when I was reaching out to folks saying, hey, I'm in your, I'm in your hood, I could send them a link saying, I, I've learned a lot and would love to learn from you and would love to also feature you on things as well. Because there were a lot of investors who were starting to read the blog or, or follow up. So it was kind of this uh, flywheel effect, so to speak. Having a, a, a podcast, I, I know a little bit about personal branding, so I, I can relate to that. Um, so you were in Kenya, Mexico, India, uh, and more. And so how did you actually get in contact with the people that you were consulting? Um, how did you find out about them? Uh, and and how did you really allow them to, to open up to let you into their business? It's a great question. Um, so I started, I think the entire process probably took six-ish months. I reached out to people that I knew through the fintech community that had done some sort of emerging market fintech and simply just asked them for, hey, do you have half hour to teach me about this thing that you wrote? So I think that the first step there is like people are always willing to give you their time 
if you are respectful of it and if you're very clear as to what you're trying to get out of it. Uh, don't try to get a job out of it. Don't try to get something other than learning. And I think if you're very clear as to like, why am I reaching out to you specifically and have done the work around, hey, I, I read your book. I read this article. I saw you did this project. I think that makes that makes the the intention much more clear. Once I did that and, and, and I basically talked to you know 50 plus people, I built this Rolodex of folks that were all extremely nice and extremely caring and passionate about how do we help emerging markets get to the level of the same playing field as Silicon Valley that has a huge advantage in terms of human capital and financial capital. The, the community that felt so wide was actually much smaller than I thought. Uh, so it, it was just you know a handful of folks that that knew everyone like, oh, you're, you're going to Nairobi, like you need to talk to this person. And so it became this, um, this just very tight community of folks that were so generous with their time and energy and connections. Um, and I also had something to give back. I mean, I think if you spend three years in a, in a fast growing startup digitized in real time, probably the most advanced underwriting model for subprime businesses, you can probably teach one or two things to fintech companies that were doing the same thing around the world. And so there was definitely a give-get model there. And from there, I think I, I got support from uh, uh, you know, investors. Um, there was a, a, a big community of pro bono investors or even nonprofit investors that were fueling this in terms of mentorship programs. And then you know, one thing led to another in terms of me sharing on, tw- on LinkedIn or Twitter and, and folks picking up and reaching out and saying, hey, you know, any interest in coming to uh, to Egypt or or any interesting coming to to Qatar, et cetera. I even um, that's where the writing really helps out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I had one one company who flew me out to uh, Myanmar after uh, kind of reading one one of the, my blog posts, and this was through a friend, and that was probably the, one of the only engagements where I actually charged for something because it wasn't planned. But through through the entire um, sabbatical, it was it was almost fully pro bono and. And I think part of that was because I was paying myself almost an MBA. What was the transition moving back into the corporate world, the startup world, uh, out of the sabbatical space? Yeah, it, the the transition back was definitely rough. Uh, one of my friends that that worked with me at Oliver Wyman reached out and saying, "Hey, I'm starting this company. It's in New York. You should really think about coming back." In parallel, there was this company in Indonesia. That was you know trying to hire a chief product officer saying, "Hey, like join us six months, just get us off the ground. It'll be super fun and so there were very different asks one is to come back to a world i i I knew of, and another one was to 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 start into a completely new world when I was thinking about it, a lot of it boiled down to how much will I learn? One of my biggest frustrations is being the smartest person in the room, I, I really think that especially, you know, we're all fairly young. We're going to retire in 30-ish years. If you're the smartest pe- person in the room at that stage and that you're, you're being looked to for the answer, um, it's actually not a good place to be. And so I, I really wanted to stop kind of being the one telling people what the answer was and start, you know, being the one asking the questions. And I think a move back to an industry that was a bit more set up, especially with founders that were 10 times smarter than I was, was really important to me. And so uh, that's where I, I kind of decided to come back to uh, to New York City, where, where especially at Ramp, where I, I consistently think of myself as the dumbest person in the room and, and, and hire people 
to continue making me feel that way. Yeah, I think that humility and also focus on learning from other people is really key to growth long term. What are the challenges that Ramp is trying to solve? What are you doing there now? Ramp is trying to solve the misaligned incentives between corporate cards that were designed to gamify spend that are then being sold to small and medium-sized businesses uh, with technology, with software. Um, So we basically are the only corporate card and spam management solution that helps companies spend less. And we try to align the incentive between us, the company, um, and and the employees trying to make purchases. Um, So a few things that we're focused on, one is how to destroy expense reports, how to make companies not treat their employees like bank accounts. Um, I remember in consulting, I had my expenses were higher than my salary at times. And and I had to front that on an Amex that I didn't even get the points from. So um, I've also always found that that is a weird privilege sort of thing where there's a certain type of person who can afford to front $15,000, $20,000 in flights, hotels, whatever corporate expenses. And there's people who, who just can't do that, who can't float that type of money. And so that also kind of biases who the people are that work in the industry and who can do well in those different companies. 100%. There's, there's that on employees. There's that on even, even founders who put business expenses on their own credit reports or on their own liabilities and then basically get, get screwed if, if, if their businesses go under. Um, and there's also just misaligned incentives for um, the concept of who's allowed to spend. You have, you, have, you have only one or two execs that have the cards that benefit from them, that you know, get their, their points and their hotels, and then everyone has to you know, ask them for the, for, the, for, the, for the metal, for the, for the plastic card. And so we're trying to also democratize access to the company's capital through um, automated request and approvals, automated procurements, uh, virtual cards that that are you know fully embedded with the expense policy, so that um, you can give people you know access access to spend without necessarily needing a ton of overhead. Do you think uh, any of the people you met on your sabbatical are uh, Ramp customers now? So unfortunately, we're only available in the U.S. There are Ramp-like companies in emerging markets um, that I actually am involved. In, in, in helping out um, and, and telling them all the things that we've learned in the U.S. and how they can apply uh, elsewhere. So uh, one company, Tribal, that just raised uh, a ton of money is doing something very similar. And, and um, you know, I, I definitely encourage them and, and, and try to support any way I can. So you're still kind of acting like an advisor. You know, you're, you're doing an advisory role for other companies still even with your role at Ramp? Yeah, I think people abuse the term advisor. I mean, I'm... I'll, 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 I call myself a friend. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't take equity or compensation or board seats or, and I'm also a pretty terrible investor, uh, just cause I'm, t- I'm too honest. And I, I, uh, I'm also s- somewhat of a pessimist. Um, so, uh, I'll call myself a friend, but yeah, I try to, because of how generous people were with their time when I needed their support. And now I'm on the other side getting, you know, pinged every day on LinkedIn, I'll, I'll, you know, I force myself to say yes, nine times out of 10 in terms of my time, if the person is thoughtful with what they're reaching out about. 
We talked about the challenges that Ramp is trying to solve more broadly, that inefficiency, those incentives. Can we zoom in a little bit? What are the what are the specific sort of challenges ahead for Ramp and for you and the teams you're trying to build? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a few examples. One is during COVID, you essentially have a huge increase in in software spending across companies. Um, everything is becoming digital. Everything is moving to the cloud. Um, you have obviously Zoom, but but a ton of other software that makes it easier to collaborate remotely. And companies are the share of spend of companies that's going to SaaS and 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 web hosting is is and servers are is massive. And so all of that can now be put on virtual cars on ramp. How can ramp help companies determine the ROI of these investments and kill things that are not uh, giving them the right ROI? For example, license management, for example, pricing management, negotiations. So all these things are not possible because we have the spend, we have the data, we have the invoices, we also have the authorization so we can cancel at any time. Uh, those are things that are now possible with, with Ramp. Um, another example is, is travel. As travel picks back up, uh, folks are very much incentivized to spend up to the expense limit, right? You can expense flights. Or hotels up to six hundred dollars. You're going to book why, five. Why? Why not? Right? <laughs> yeah, it gives me more points. I get status more quickly. Uh, and so, how do you how do you create the reverse incentive where responsible employees get uh, get just as much reward from that than those that are trying to abuse the system? Um, how also can you now? You know, flights are. Uh, you know, you can you can cancel and rebook flights for free. How can Ramp potentially automate that if 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 if, if rates change? How can we revolutionize travel? So there's a lot of really interesting use cases once you own the credit card and the payment rails uh, that other companies can't do uh, without it. For folks that don't know about uh, Ramp specifically, what what stage of what what's sort of the life cycle of the company? Is it high growth? Or are you still trying to find product market fit? Yeah, so we are we're two years old. One year, one year old from a launch perspective, we definitely found product market fit um, almost immediately. And the feature that really found it was you can you text the receipt and it automatically matches to your credit card transactions and automatically categorizes that transaction based on rules that your accounting system, accounting team has set up. And, and just that, and, uh, and the growth kind of came from there. You know, we have enough capital to kind of continue to think about how to innovate in this space. And going to be uh, growing fairly quickly. And, and with that comes obviously a lot of challenges as well, but but exciting nonetheless and, and, and super, super excited for what's coming. How many people are on the product team? So I, I use the term product loosely. I like to say that everyone's part of the product team um, and I don't, I don't like hiring too many product managers because I want everyone to think that their job is product management. And if that's the case, then we become a product driven company. And so I deliberately kept the product team very, very lean for the first year so that engineers thought about the product, so that salespeople thought about the product, so that account managers thought about the product, so that support people thought about the product. Because if everyone thinks about the product, then we can improve much, much better. Uh, what is the workaround? What is the use case? What is the pain point? How can I improve this? Uh, we also had a, a huge design team that, when I say huge, I mean huge in terms of impact. There were actually only, only three people um, that were also wearing a lot of product hats. So to answer your question directly, in terms of product managers, we have, there's two people on my team 
but we have 40 engineers. So it's interesting that you say that, that you were you know, intentionally trying to keep the product management team lean so that you could really make everybody think that they had ownership over the product. What kind of systems or like culture did you set up and how'd you do it to make those teams feel like they had ownership I'll, over them? I'll throw out a few. So the first is we have, we have a huge culture of, of act like an owner. And what that means is when you see something that you think that you own, uh, take take ownership and 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 drive it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we launched we launched the ability to reimburse employees on non carts then on ramp. And one of our engineers set up so that he gets notified whenever someone says reimbursement anywhere on Slack. Now you can think that's kind of crazy. Your your job is to code the ticket that I gave you, right? But what happened is this person now sees everything about the product can jump in when there's an issue or even a sales question, which should probably not be that person's job. Maybe it's on product marketing to do that, but it drives a huge culture of ownership. And now this person is working three times smarter in terms of the next iteration of the product and can actually have huge input to what the product spec is, what the product roadmap is, or the user experience. And so it's less around process. It's more around culture of not telling someone it's not your job, but understanding like where the limits are, right? So for example, that engineer is not gonna go ahead and just build this new thing that the engineer thinks uh, we should do, but rather he's gonna pull design and engineering and be like, hey, I think we should really focus on this problem and we're gonna work on it together if we all think it's it's the right thing to do. The other cult- cultural piece or process piece is more around farming for dissent and not approval, which is really around, hey, I'm gonna go ahead and do this. Uh, and so you have engineers who are literally changing a design, building code for it, and then farming for dissent to the design and, and product teams. And like that might be crazy for some folks, uh, but for us, we are big risk takers and we, we really trust people with the right guardrails to do these things. So, And by farming by dissent, you mean doing something um, without permission and then asking for someone to say, to say, you know, that's a bad idea. And, and if no one really rejects it, then you're probably on the right path. That's exactly right. It's much, it's it's very easy for people to want to be in the seat of approving, which is also the culture of spend management too, right? You have controllers and accountants who want to approve every little thing that you do, but instead, like your job isn't to click approve. Your job is to identify things that are wrong and fixing it. And so just flipping on its head and saying, hey, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Do you disagree? Or do you have input that you want to give me? Otherwise it's going. And, and as long as you keep that schedule, the train is going to leave the station. It keeps everyone to a very high level of cadence and excellence. I, I like that you talked about kind of are focusing more on the culture rather than the process itself, which encourages people to do the right thing without you having to really be there. You're building up a, a product management team as ramp needs a skill. You're probably going to need product managers. Um, so what are what are some of the kind of uh, cultural things you're building with your in your own PM team? Hiring product managers is extremely hard uh, because they can be hugely a huge lever and force for good or a huge destroying force uh, where things can can really slow down. So we take a very long time to hire um, and we involve a lot of the organization, including you know business stakeholders, design, engineering, exec team, et cetera. Uh, there's a few things that I found to be predictors of success as a PM. Um, And that is, one is obsession with customers. If you 
see an issue and you don't feel for that person who's having that issue, you cannot be a PM. And the way to foster that is uh, I throw PMs that support tickets once a month. There's nothing more more humbling than answering support tickets because no one writes in support saying they love your product. The second is, is high agency. Um, it takes a lot to ship a product and there are people who make excuses and there's people who actually ship products. And, and, and I really, what I try to optimize for as much as possible, especially in startups, is the time between idea and reality. Because in startups, everyone has an idea, right? Oh, like we should do this. We should do this. This would be cool. There is ideas people and there's people who actually get things done. And, and, and the time frame between idea and reality, if you squeeze that, then you can increase learning, right? And so agency is just such a big part of that is like, how can you go through walls? How can you jump in and start rowing? Like, will this, will this person pick a shovel and start digging? And, and, and how do you assess that out in an interview? There are people who are very hands-off, right? And just like, they'll write the specs and, and expect other people to do the work. I look for, for PMs and business leaders in general who are willing to pick up that shovel and start digging. Um, and then the third is like extreme ability to work cross-functionally and build relationships. You, you don't ship a product in B2B without having a strong relationship with the sales team, with the account management team, with the marketing team, with the support team, with the operations team. Will people look up to this person? Will people love working with this person? Will they trust this person with the amount of authority they have in the organization? Will this person be looked at as a leader? So understand, really understanding the customer, someone who will pick up a shovel and have bias for action, strong sort of cross-functional uh, bias, good communications, all the stuff that goes with that. What are some of the anti-patterns that maybe you've observed or things that uh, send up a red flag for you? Great question. Folks that rely too much on being right. So let's talk about product intuition, right? You have people who are, I believe that product managers can only be right 60% of the time. Let's call it seven. If you're amazing, 80, right? But you will be wrong one time out of five or, or two, times, two times out of five. I don't know. You will be wrong. And, there, and there's two types of people, people who, are, who can measure and be, be willing to be wrong and people who will make excuses and always think they're right. And so I think humility is, is, is such a strong force. And it's related to also cross-functional stakeholders because the idea doesn't need to come from product. That, that's kind of a wrong thing to think about. Like the product people aren't thinking about like, we should build this thing. That's a great idea. Ha, ha, ha. Let's go ahead and build it. They're focused on the problem. And I mean, I think Einstein said that, right? Like if I had like 60 minutes, I would spend 59 minutes thinking about the problem and one minute on the solution. And that's totally right. So the PMs are really focusing on the problem, on the why, on, 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 on what is the customer feeling, on what is the job to be done. The solution itself is pretty cheap when you actually understand that. And it could come from anyone. And in fact, a good PM can facilitate ideation, can facilitate safe spaces for people to take those risks in sharing their opinions and ideate. And most of the you know, ideas that come out um, of those sessions can come from you know, entry-level engineers or, or support people or designers, it doesn't really matter. Um, so anti-pattern there is, is the inability to uh, get out of your own head and, and be wrong and, and also source ideas that are not yours, champion ideas that are not yours.
PM as facilitator, I feel like is the best description of this because you can be the smartest person in the world. You only have a limited amount of bandwidth and you're not going to, as a sort of company, as an organization, do as well as you could if all of the ideas have to come from one person's head. And so really framing the problem, creating the, you know, even if it's just meetings or the, the collaborative spaces in which some of those ideas can flourish based on a solid problem definition, if you can do that well as a PM, you're going to succeed. And that idea of facilitation kind of brings things back full circle. You know, you and I met at an improv class and I feel like improv is a lot about facilitation, about creating spaces where people feel comfortable, where that creativity can bloom. Are there other skills, you know, like improv that you're working on building for yourself right now? Yeah, I I love that, Stuart. Um, Improv was for me a way to relax, a way to have fun. But I think in a lot of ways, especially in remote environments, the job of a PM is to energize and, and get people out of their shell. People are isolated. There's a huge amount of depression in this country right now. And you kind of have to let loose to be silly, to be yourself, um, to show personal sides, to build that trust remotely, and, and to bring people to work on things that, um, that they didn't know they cared about, but are suddenly super obsessed about it. And I think, I think part, of, part of improv for me was was the ability to energize myself and bring that energy and and bring that creativity. I, I think this year, especially you know with the startup, it's been it's been grueling to even uh, get out of work. All I'm trying to do right now at this stage is is keep the company afloat, is to hire people that are better than me, um, and that way have more time back on weekends, just going for a walk with with my partner and calling a friend. So it's much more humble now that it's been, but. Uh, those are the th- uh, you know if if you if you know of a good improv class in New York City uh, or you're in town, Stuart, we'll we'll go again. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you again. I love the eclectic mix of things that you've done. Everything from personal brand building, I feel like there's a lot to learn from that, all the way to the nitty gritty of how do you actually hire and build a team in a, a an environment that's quickly growing and. uncertain um, and and instilling some of that product sense in the rest of the org. So thank you very much for your time today. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to the Go to Market podcast. We'll catch you next time.